This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. How can members of Christ's one true church criticize the Pope? Perhaps the biggest question facing traditional Catholics is one of loyalty. Loyalty to the office of the papacy, often referred to as ultramontanism, and to the teaching office of the magisterium is part of being authentically Catholic. Yet often, the actions of the popes themselves cause great concern, especially when they appear to violate long-held standards. So how can a conscientious Catholic reconcile the absolute necessity to remain loyal to Holy Mother Church and yet reject errors, even when they come from Rome? Author and scholar José Antonio Ureta deals with this very important issue in his essay, Modernism, Not Ultramontanism, is the Synthesis of All Heresies. In American traditionalist circles, it is becoming fashionable to blame Ultramontanism for all the ills affecting Catholicism today. Supposedly, Pope Francis is imposing a revolutionary agenda on the Church because of the actions of Ultramontanes during the First Vatican Council. Detractors admit that Ultramontanes turned traditional Church teaching on papal infallibility and universal jurisdiction into dogma. They go on to falsely claim, however, that Ultramontanes corrupted the faithful's obedience to the Pope into obsequiousness, having enveloped his person in an aura of exaggerated venerability. This development supposedly resulted in centralization and consequent abuse of power in the Church. To avoid Ultramontane-fostered so-called papolatry, some authors suggest rethinking the papacy in terms of the first millennium, before St. Gregory VII, concerning the appointment of bishops and the exercise of the Pope's magisterial power. This accusation recently appeared in an article by Stuart Chessman titled, Ultramontanism, Its Life and Death first published on the blog of the Society of St. Hugh of Cluny in four parts, and later as a single text on the Rorate Chely blog. According to the author, a, quote, spirit of Vatican I, unquote, led people to interpret that council's dogmatic definitions far beyond the limits imposed by their text. That inaugurated a supposed ultramontane regime, in which, quote, all authority in matters of the faith, organization, and liturgy was centralized in the Vatican, and obedience to the ecclesiastical authority was elevated to a central position in the Catholic faith, unquote, with a corresponding decrease in episcopal authority. A bishop of the anti-infallibilist minority current ironically commented, quote, I went in a bishop and came out a sacristan, unquote. The Lateran Treaty and the creation of the Vatican State, as well as new communications technologies, allegedly increased the importance of this ultramontane element in the life of the Church. That had some advantages, quote, 
a great uniformity of belief and practice was achieved, unquote. But also serious drawbacks, primarily the bureaucratization of the church and its inevitable consequence, mediocre manager bishops who ceased to be spiritual leaders capable of converting the world. This, quote, Defensive strategy aimed at block-like unity, centralized control, and absolute subordination to superiors, and resulted in a revival of progressive Catholicism, unquote. The latter would have originated, quote, as a feeling of frustration with the timid bourgeois nature of ultramontanist Catholic witness and the Church's excessive conformity to the world and as a reaction to restrictions on Catholic discourse, unquote. As per Mr. Chessman's narrative, ultramontanism later allied with the quote-unquote internal progressive forces that materialized at the Vatican Council. He goes so far as to state, quote, the management of the Council and its subsequent implementation were truly the greatest triumph of ultramontanism, Unquote. The revolutionary changes imposed by Paul VI met little resistance because, quote, the customs and traditions of the Church had likely lost their grip on much of the Catholic world through the ultramontane understanding of obedience to authority and adherence to legal rules as the source of their legitimacy, unquote. Due to the growth of the progressive current, the story continues, ultramontanists failed to consolidate the authority of the Roman pontiff in the aftermath of Vatican II, and particularly after the rejection of Humanae Vitae. However, Pope John Paul II undertook a quote-unquote neo-ultramontane revival that emphasized papal infallibility and transformed the Pope into a, quote, kind of worldwide spiritual advocate, unquote. Domestically, however, and particularly under Benedict XVI, quote, the Vatican increasingly functioned as a mere administrative center, unquote taking the bureaucratization of the church even further and transforming it into a, quote, cesspool of careerism, incompetence, and financial corruption, unquote. Pope Francis's election entailed, quote, a recommitment to the progressive agenda of the 1960s, along with a radical revival of ultramontane authoritarianism, unquote. Using the language and techniques of ultramontanism, the Argentine Pope, quote, sets up church unity and the inviolability of the council as absolute values to silence and oppress traditionalists. Hence, truly the regime of Francis can be called totalitarian ultramontanism, unquote. In short, for such traditionalist circles, All the evils the Church now suffers result from ultramontanists, whose great mistake was to have sought, quote, to achieve spiritual objectives through the application of organizational techniques, unquote. Paradoxically, ultramontanism ultimately achieved the opposite of its goal, quote, 
a set of policies that was supposed to secure the doctrine of the church from internal enemies and preserve her independence from secular control has instead facilitated the greatest crisis of belief in the church's history, along with her most abject subjection to the temporal power, not that of monarchs as in the past, but of the media, banks, NGOs, universities, and increasingly democratic governments, including China, unquote. From the above, one could almost say that the church's, quote, mysterious process of self-demolition due to the infiltration of the smoke of Satan, unquote, of which Paul VI spoke, originated, developed, and attained its apex thanks to ultramontranism, this new synthesis of all evils. What could be the way out of this crisis? The author says, quote, The way out of the ultramontane progressive dead end requires an anti-ultramontane traditionalism because it does not stand on the authority of the clergy, but on the individual commitment of the laity to the fullness of Catholic tradition, with due respect to the freedom of conscience of the individual believer, unquote. However, Mr. Chessman's intellectual construction suffers from two major defects. First, he attributes the origin of the current crisis of faith to purely natural factors, the way papal power is structured and exercised. The truth is that it stemmed from a moral and religious crisis that escalated throughout the West since the Renaissance and Protestantism, as Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira sharply analyzed in Revolution and Counter-Revolution. Second, Mr. Chessman's theory is unhistorical. In recent articles, I have briefly dealt with the error that consists in attributing to the ultramontane current and a so-called spirit of Vatican I, the expansion of the Pope's magisterial and disciplinary authority beyond the limits set by the dogmatic constitution, Pastor Eternus. In the first article, I showed how the top representative of ultramontanism, Cardinal Louis-Edouard P.A., had a perfectly balanced and non-absolutist concept of papal monarchy and was a great supporter of provincial plenary councils. In the second article, I showed that Pope Leo XIII, who was orthodox in doctrine but liberal in policy, was the one who began demanding that lay Catholics adhere to his ralliement unconditionally supporting France's Republican and Masonic regime. I showed that the ones who applauded the imposition of unconditional obedience in political matters were representatives of the liberal current who had opposed the dogmatic definitions of Vatican I. One of those prelates, Cardinal La Virgerie, went so far as to state, quote, the only rule of salvation and life in the church is to be with the Pope, the living Pope, whoever he may be, unquote. I further showed that the representatives of ultramontanism were the ones who resisted the abusive extension of papal authority and obedience beyond their defined limits. They were so keenly aware of those limits that still in the 19th century, one of them raised the question of the theological possibility of a heretical pope. 
St. Pius X was an ultramontane pope and a great admirer of Cardinal Pierre. The French prelate's writings inspired him to choose Restore All Things in Christ as the motto of his pontificate. True, St. Pius X demanded full obedience in matters of faith and was very firm in denouncing and repressing heresy. He excommunicated modernist leaders and imposed the anti-modernist oath. However, he never abused papal authority nor sought to impose uniform thinking in matters where Catholics are entitled to form a personal opinion. To the applause of the liberal current, non-ultramontane popes subsequently required the faithful to obey their agenda of strict appeasement of revolutionary political powers. This started with Benedict XV. In his first encyclical, Ad Beatissimi Apostolorum, he silenced those who defended unreserved adherence to church teachings and their validity in society, labeling them integrists. He did so, quote, to quell dissension and strife of any kind among Catholics and prevent new ones from arising so that all may be united in thought and action, unquote. To achieve that, everyone had to align with the Holy See, quote, Wherever legitimate authority has once given a clear command, let no one transgress that command, because it does not happen to commend itself to him. But let each one subject his own opinion to the authority of him who is his superior and obey him as a matter of conscience. Again, let no private individual whether in books or in the press or in public speeches, take upon himself the position of an authoritative teacher in the church. All know to whom the teaching authority of the church has been given by God. He then possesses a perfect right to speak as he wishes and when he thinks it opportune. The duty of others is to hearken to him reverently when he speaks and to carry out what he says." Divergent opinions were allowed in matters other than faith and morals, such as lay Catholic political action or a journalistic approach to modernism, provided the Pope had not given his own, quote, as regard matters in which without harm to faith and discipline, in the absence of any authoritative intervention of the apostolic see, there is room for divergent opinions. It is clearly the right of everyone to express and defend his own opinion, unquote. His successor, Pius XI, who belonged to the same non-ultramontane current, went so far as to excommunicate the subscribers of the monarchist newspaper Action Frances because of its director, Charles Maurras's agnostic opinions. This would be as if Pope Francis excommunicated Breitbart or Fox News readers for supporting anti-immigration policies. He even removed the cardinal's hat from the Jesuit Louis Bilot, one of the 20th century's greatest theologians, for having expressed opposition to that measure. The same non-ultramontane Pius XI approved the agreement between Mexico's liberal bishops and the Masonic government negotiated by the U.S. ambassador, which pressured the Cristeros to lay down their arms. As is well known, the government failed to honor the agreement, 
executed thousands of Catholic fighters, and upheld most of its anti-clerical laws. Within the church, Pius XI centralized the lay apostolate worldwide into Catholic action, an organization infiltrated by liberal and secular leanings. He gave it preeminence over all the traditional and autonomous lay apostolate movements, such as Third Orders, Marian Sodalities, and the Apostleship of Prayer. Pope Pius XII was a figure of contrasts. Before making Father Augustine Bea S.J., later created a cardinal, his confessor, he held a traditional position close to that of the heirs of Ultramontanism. He condemned emerging progressive errors, particularly in the liturgy. Later, though, inspired by Father Bea and helped by then-Father Bugnini, the same Pius XII revolutionized Holy Week's liturgical rites and allowed use of the historical critical method developed by Protestants for biblical studies. The one who warned about the danger of an instrumentalization of the magisterium was no ultramontane liberal, but a leading figure of the Roman school, the stronghold of what remained of ultramontanism in academia. In an article published in L'Observatore Romano on February the 10th, 1942, Monsignor Pietro Parete denounced, quote, the strange identification of tradition, the source of revelation, with the living magisterium of the church, custodian and interpreter of the divine word, unquote. If tradition and magisterium are the same, then tradition ceases being the unchanging deposit of the faith and varies according to the teaching of the reigning pope. All this proves that blaming ultramontanism for the errors of identifying tradition with the living magisterium and imposing uniform thinking in non-dogmatic matters is historically flawed. It was the liberal progressive current that did it. Contrary to what Mr. Chessman says, those who claimed to be the heirs of ultramontanism resisted the attempts to force them to accept the Pope's liberal policy of the extended hand to the world throughout that period. The centralism and authoritarianism now blamed on ultramontanism were not a fruit of Vatican I or its so-called spirit. They were the fruit of liberalism infiltrated in the church. As Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira explains, quote, Liberalism is not interested in freedom for what is good. It is solely interested in freedom for evil. When in power, it easily and even joyfully restricts the freedom of the good as much as possible. But in many ways, it protects favors, and promotes freedom for evil. Just as liberals denounced the Bastille before the French Revolution, but imposed the terror once in power, Catholic liberals and modernists denounced the supposed authoritarianism of Blessed Pius IX and St. Pius X. However, as soon as they seized the highest positions in the Church, they imposed rigid obedience to their world-embracing agenda even in strictly political affairs not involving matters of faith and morals. Another of Mr. Chessman's historical inaccuracies 
is the supposed alliance between Ultramontanism and Progressivism at the Second Vatican Council. Giuseppe Angelo Roncalli was no Ultramontane, but a sympathizer of modernism in his youth. When opening the conciliar assembly, John XXIII excoriated the prophets of doom, meaning the Ultramontanes. All of that council's historians reckon that there was a clash between the progressive and conservative minorities, with the former gradually having managed to pull the vast moderate majority to its side. The handful of prelates with ultramontane spirit gathered in the Quetus Internationalis Patrum were the ones who worked the most to include traditional texts opposed to modernist novelties in the council's texts. Blessed Pius IX must have turned in his grave as Vatican II approved the introduction of a dual supreme authority in the Church, implicit in the theory of collegiality. How can anyone pretend that, quote, the management of the Council and its subsequent implementation were truly the greatest triumph of ultramontanism, unquote? There is no doubt that the pontificate of John Paul II was a first attempt to give the council's novelties a moderate interpretation along the lines of what was later dubbed a hermeneutic of continuity. His supporters defended this moderate position mainly by appealing to the Roman pontiff's celebrity media image. Father Chad Ripperger called it magisterialism. However, it makes no sense to characterize this moderate offensive as an ultramontane revival. John Paul II is the author of Ut Unum Sint. This encyclical intended, quote, to find a way of exercising the primacy which, while in no way renouncing what is essential to its mission, is nonetheless open to a new situation by seeking to meet the ecumenical aspirations of the majority of the Christian communities, unquote. This ambition was precisely the opposite of what the Ultramontanes achieved at the First Vatican Council, the dogma of the Pope's primacy of jurisdiction, which heretical and schismatic Christian communities reject. One of the errors in Mr. Chessman's article, as mentioned, is to attribute the origin of the current crisis of faith to a purely natural factor, the bureaucratic and centralized exercise of papal authority. The growing centralization of papal power in the hands of non-Ultramontane and even anti-Ultramontane popes, Leo XIII, Benedict XV, Pius XI, and the conciliar popes, is not the reason why the crisis of faith worsened in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th century. The crisis stemmed from and was aggravated by the penetration of the world's putrefying liberal miasmas into the Catholic Church. Modernity's mentality was born of the anti-Christian revolution and started dominating the West's cultural, intellectual, and political life from the Renaissance onward. The church was pressured to adapt to the new emerging world, mainly from the 19th century. Quote, It is not a matter of choosing between the principles of 1789 and the dogmas of the Catholic religion, exclaimed Duke Albert de Broglie, 
one of the leaders of the liberal Catholic bloc. But to purify principles with dogmas and make both walk side by side. It is not a question of confronting each other in a duel, but of making peace. Unquote. Such infiltration of revolutionary errors in the Church reached its climax with modernism, which professes that the dogmas of the faith must adapt to humanity's evolving religious experience and that worship should evolve according to each era's uses and customs. Pius IX and St. Pius X issued explicit condemnations against any attempt to reconcile the Church with modern errors. They urged Catholics to courageously confront what St. Pius X called the synthesis of all heresies. This opposition made the models of an ultramontane papacy. However, their successors were less energetic and even conciliatory. With John XXIII and the opening of the Second Vatican Council, the ultramontane anti-liberal position of combat against modernity and its errors was abandoned officially and replaced with an attitude of benevolent dialogue with and submission to the modern world. Like 20th century modernists, Pope Francis openly seeks to adapt the Church to anthropological and cultural changes. According to him, the divine impulse present in humanity's progress justifies today's changes. He attributes these impulses and new dynamics in human action to divine action. Quote, God manifests himself in historical revelation, in history. God is in history, in the process, he asserts. Eugenio Scalfari, the agnostic founder of La Repubblica, was right when he titled his article on Laudato Si, Francis, the Pope Prophet Who Meets Modernity. Leaders of modernity's applause for the present Pope's statements and initiatives confirm that assessment. The current Pope, and some previous ones, have abused papal authority to advance the modernist agenda of reconciling the Church to the revolutionary world. This does not make them ultramontane popes. The careerist prelates who ran their dioceses as mediocre public servants and ignored the infiltration of modernist errors among the faithful, errors with which they sympathized, were not ultramontanes either. The clerics and faithful who espoused modernist errors did not do so because of a false sense of obedience. They did it because they were imbued with the liberal and revolutionary spirit of the world. During this long apostasy from the faith, a small ultramontane minority of clergy and laity strove to counter the infiltration of heresy and defend traditional church teaching. If some of them did not do more, or even shrank from the fight, it was because of cowardice, not an excessive ultramontane reverence for the papacy. Blaming ultramontanism for the current crisis of the church and ignoring the fundamental role of modernism in its gestation and journey toward paradoxism is like blaming a dam for being unable to resist a flood while exonerating the foaming and churning waters that overran the dam. Ultramontanes have 
always admired and respected the hierarchical order in the universe, society, and the church, especially in the papacy, the highest authority on earth. The same love for the hierarchical order led them to venerate and obey the creator and sovereign Lord of the world and the divine founder of the church. They thus reject any error or transgression of the divine law because one must obey God rather than men. Because of their well-ordered love of the principle of authority, those who most love the papacy are also better prepared to staunchly, albeit respectfully, resist any deviation from tradition. No one had a more ardent love for the papacy than St. Paul, who, quote, went up to Jerusalem to meet Cephas, see Galatians 1.18, and returned there 14 years later to expound the gospel that he preached to the Gentiles in order not to run in vain, see Galatians 2.2. No one, however, was firmer than St. Paul in resisting Peter to his face because he was blameworthy, see Galatians 2.11. In the short run, the proposal to resize the papacy to avoid abuse could lessen the problems of conscience created by a series of popes who have promoted the self-demolition of the church. However, in the long run, it would help church self-demolishers, bent on destroying, or at least weakening, the rock on which she was built. Paradoxically, both ultra-progressives and new anti-ultramontane traditionalists proposed to stop calling the Pope the Vicar of Christ, as did the editor of Crisis magazine. He claimed that this title lends itself to excessive veneration if applied to the Pope alone, whereas it could also apply to all bishops. Paradoxically, an article denouncing ultramontane totalitarianism appeared on the blog of the society established to honor St. Hugh of Cluny. He was the great advisor to Pope St. Leo IX, Nicholas II, and especially the great St. Gregory VII. The latter, his Cluniac confrere, raised papal authority to an apex. He re-established the Church's internal discipline with the Gregorian reform. Concerning the investiture of bishops and abbots, he victoriously affirmed papal supremacy over civil authority. St. Hugh was with St. Gregory VII at the famous episode in Canossa, which revolutionary historians consider the starting point of ultramontanism. The papacy's present eclipse is probably the most dramatic in the Church's 2,000-year-old history. The crisis requires us to increase our love for this holiest of earthly institutions. Jesus Christ established it as the keystone of his church and endowed it with the power of the keys, the most tremendous and sacred power binding heaven and earth. Undiplomatic attitudes by St. Leo IX's legate angered the Greeks and favored the Eastern schism. The scandalous lifestyle of the Renaissance popes angered the Germans and favored Luther's heresy. Today, Pope Francis's blatantly erroneous teachings and egregiously unpastoral actions must not arouse emotional anger in his victims. 
while Catholics may legitimately harbor doctrinal reservations about and resist a wayward occupant of the throne of Peter, they must never succumb to reservations about the papacy itself. These are always illegitimate. Let us imitate the French monarchists during the Restoration, who despite Louis XVIII's liberal policy, which favored Bonapartists and Republicans, and persecuted defenders of the throne, shouted, Vive le roi, quand même. In other words, despite everything, long live the king. This concludes, How Can Members of Christ's One True Church Criticize the Pope? Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. The original article is exhaustively footnoted. A link to the article is provided in the show notes for those who wish to examine Mr. Ureta's sources of information. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the return to order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help return to order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, P.F.P.